politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots. You might be subjects to our government, but you are patriots here at the Conservative Review here at Blaze Media. Daniel Horowitz back in the house for independent conservative talk, common sense, no groupthink, no herd mentality, only herd immunity. Well, we celebrate two milestones today. One positive and one is really a commemoration of a grim milestone. Positive is today's our 700th show. Boy, have we come a long way from those early days where we kind of did this sporadically one day a week, then two days a week, then three days a week, till we eventually made this an everyday occurrence over the last two years or so. And it truly has been a blessing to have such a loyal audience like you guys that are looking for something new, looking for something a little bit more in depth, broader, deeper, beyond the stupid party politics, just straight up common sense, identifying the problems we have and identifying the solutions. Now, when it comes to the era we live in, I don't think we need to look too deep to identify problems. We're, we're in a living hell where we can't even educate our children anymore. And you guys have really been a, a source of blessing. You go to our Facebook fan pages, Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary, Miniman Speakeasy. Um, I put out a post there kind of spawning some discussion on the best homeschooling curriculum because that's what we're going to need in the coming days with our two older boys. I'm not going to have them sit and wear masks all day and be subject to mandatory quarantines and God knows whatever pagan rituals and then the mental and emotional health toll that that takes on our children. I will not subject myself to that and I think we just need to turn this into a homeschooling revolution. But that leads me to the other milestone which is the 150th day to stop the spread. How 15 days to flatten the curve has turned into 150 days to somehow completely eradicate a virus that is not really the type of virus that you eradicate. It's the type of virus that is essentially the fifth coronavirus cold, just like the others started out hitting people at some point, but we didn't make a big deal out of it. They turned into a common cold. That's really where this is headed. And yet we have a degree of emotional, mental, and economic upheaval in this country. I'm going to have a piece out either later today or tomorrow to quantify that. We have worse mental health problems than any Western country because we have greater, a greater degree of propagation of panic porn from the media and our government than any other country. The toll that that is taking is it is just, it's shocking. It's frankly shocking. But you know what? It didn't have to be this way. And we're going to have our special guest today, Congressman Thomas Massey, on why it didn't have to be that way. And again, at the same time, we have the worst degree of tyranny, of, of anarchy with the tyranny where we are on our own with education and, our, and, and to earn a living, but we're also on our own for self-defense. The police have been abolished, but not really abolished. They're used to place us in jail if we open up a business like that gym owner in New Jersey. If we don't wear a mask, 
as long as you're wearing a mask while you rob a store, totally fine. I mean, you look at those scenes in Chicago, it, it is literally reminiscent of Kristallnacht. It's just unbelievable. How many people do you think wound up getting away with it? Clearly, clearly, the majority of them. Well, folks, one thing I need you to do is support today's sponsor, We the People Holsters. Record numbers of people are buying guns and ammo. But a lot of people I meet, they forget about a holster. Even if you, I mean, if you're concealed carry, obviously that's, that's everything. Even if you're not, I carry it around my home because these idiots don't allow me to carry it uh, here in Maryland outside because you never know when you're going to get hit by a BLM mob. As we've seen in, in Fort Collins, some of these other places, Seattle suburbs, or if you're at the range, you really want to practice draw shooting. I mean, to the extent that your range allows that or you qualify, it is something to really strive for when you're doing shooting drills. You, you really cannot become a proficient shooter to simulate real-life self-defense if you do not draw shoot. You need a comfortable, versatile, and secure holster. I have not found better holsters than We The People holsters. Okay? I want you guys to go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. They have holsters starting at just $39 pretty much for every type of gun you have. I have it for all mine. Uh, H&K VP9, my Canik uh, TP9 series, my Walther's. Um, they got everything inside the waistband, outside the waistband. Amazing selection. Propriety clip design allows you to easily adjust both the cant and the ride. So it's both comfortable and secure. And, and you just have that feeling. It's there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to draw very well, but, but it won't you know, accidentally uh, move anywhere. All American made. It doesn't get more red, white, and blue than this. So I want you guys to go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. You get free shipping and $10 off. So remember to put in offer code CR. Satisfaction guaranteed. If it doesn't fit for whatever reason, your sort of model, you have a, uh, you know, a funny submodel or something, doesn't fit. It usually does. Send it back totally free. Again, wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Offer code CR. So, friends, speaking of holsters and guns, I wanted to bring on Congressman Thomas Massey, who is the head of the Second Amendment Caucus in Congress. Now, we're not really going to talk about guns today, although we do maybe a different time. Um, This is a man who lives out on his own farm in God's country in northern Kentucky. And I'm bringing him on today because we're, again, commemorating this grim milestone of 15 equals 150, 150 days to flatten the curve that's been flattened. Hospitals are an overrun. We passed a bill on March 27th, and that was already when we were kind of locked down for like a week in a lot of states. And, you know, understandably, a lot of people didn't know what was going on. Those of us who study this more carefully, frankly, on this show since January, we've we've been studying this. We understood already the truth that this was very rare in terms of being deadly for, for most people whose really it wasn't their time to go. Um, it had already been with us for a while and we were living with it. It was fundamentally no different from the other 
pandemic flu type of things that we've lived with before, some of which became obsolete, some of which wound up becoming seasonal colds over time, which possibly will shed light on these other four coronaviruses. And we said, wait a minute, before you pass trillions of dollars and fundamentally alter the relationship between the citizen and government, before we allow what we already started to see then, this unprecedented seizing of power by these governors and county officials, um, just on interstate travel bans and you know that, that you couldn't even do during the Articles of Confederation, and, and then these uh, just draconian infringements upon life, liberty, and, and in pursuit of happiness – and we said, wait a minute, rather than passing trillions of dollars presupposing that this is the threat assessment of the virus and that this is the way to deal with it and that this is constitutional and this is prudent and somehow that this even helps. And this was before the mass cult when our government was still abiding by um, an uninterrupted train of of research that you know civilians wearing masks just won't help and will likely cross-contaminate and spread, if not more of this virus, but certainly more bacteria. And nobody, everyone was like, this, no, 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 we must do this. I mean, and, and this is something that made Obama's stimulus look like Barry Goldwater. I mean, this, this was, this is the single worst piece of legislation that we have passed, you know, really certainly since FDR, if not, if not even worse than that. The degree of dependency it induced, the degree of tyranny that it empowered governors to then virtue signal on the cheap and sh- and continue a shutdown till this day. It's it's ominous. It's scary how we look back. It, it looks like it was yesterday when we had the congressman on the show. He took a stand. He got clobbered by everyone. Even the president yelled yelled at him. You know what? He actually had a primary challenger since then, and we, we've lost conservatives. Conservative challengers never win. Conservative incumbents have gone down. But Thomas Massey won like 85 to 15 or something. Uh, No one talks about that. Drive by there. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. So you know what? I figured we'd hear from the horse's mouth himself. Congressman Massey, thanks so much for joining us at this grim milestone in our history. This is a grim milestone. By the way, Daniel, uh, on March 27th, I stood up and demanded a quorum and tried to get a roll call vote. The cowards would not go on the record. Uh, Kevin McCarthy worked with Nancy Pelosi hand in hand, lockstep, to keep a vote on this bill from happening on March 27th, but I did make them show up to work. I just went back and found my notes, Daniel, this morning before I joined this podcast with you from March 23rd. I sat down and did some math. Now, I I went to MIT, I got an A in differential equations, I've had linear algebra and all that other stuff. You know, this is all the stuff beyond calculus, statistics, probability. But I used high school algebra two math on March 23rd to prove the government was lying to us. And I'm gonna put those notes on Twitter when they said 15 days to flatten the curve. I woke up and I said, I can do math. Why do I need to trust them on it? Let me calculate this based on what we know so far. And I came up with it was going to be at least 85 days to flatten the curve. So I knew they were lying to us four days before they passed that bill. That's why I got in the car and went to Washington, D.C. And here's the best way to put $3 trillion in perspective. There are 3,000 counties in the United States. 
That's a billion dollars per county. I don't know how big the county you're in is, but a billion dollars per county. That's just insane. Can you, first of all, can you imagine what we could do with a billion dollars per county if it weren't all going to Wall Street and bailing out these corporations and all the other weird places this money went? What you could do with a billion dollars per county? But I'm not for spending a billion dollars per county. So the question is, how is every county going to come up with a billion dollars to pay for this nonsense later on? You know, Thomas, it's funny you talk about that with a billion dollars per county where I live in Maryland. They now offer three free meals a day to anyone who has even a single child under the age of 18. Not means tested. I mean, just the degree of dependency is shocking. Then my parents started getting like a de- a package delivery. I guess from like some of the restaurants, they 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 pay them to make the food, and it all comes from this bill. And they doled out each state, each county, and this is what they're doing here. Anyone over sixty, and and it's like my dad was saying, look, a lot of people over sixty are well to do. I mean, so you could have someone walk up to a mansion with like a package of food. And not that they live in a mansion, but, you know, a lot of people that age, they're they're better off than the younger people. And again, irrespective of income, they are all getting free stuff. And I'm thinking like, you know, for years, all your colleagues, you know, these Republicans are like a Democrat spent too much money. They create too much dependency. There's a chart. And I don't know if you've seen it. There's a chart out there. Um, showing over time where Americans get their income from, you know, their own wages and salaries or the government. And over time, it was kind of gradually going up or the, the amount they get from government versus salaries. And then you see this and the dip goes down from wages, the straight line up from the government with this this bill that you are the only one who tried to really demand a recorded vote. And they are almost at parity now. So give me your broad overview of what you see, you know, 140, 150 days later on the results of that bill in terms of the fundamental relationship between the citizen and the government. Hmm. Well, back then, I said the $1,200 was the cheese in the trap, those $1,200 checks that went out. In fact, they sent over a billion dollars of $1,200 checks to dead people. And what you should understand about those $1,200 checks, that's not somebody in the government who cares for you. That's not a compassionate you know, payment to help you through the rough times. That's to keep the stock market going. That's to keep everything propped up so that the rich don't lose their money because most of their money is, is not in a, in a certificate of deposit. And, and it worked in that sense. It worked. You can see the bump. It worked. And in fact, the stock market is doing great. But uh, one of my uh, more affluent friends said he's worried for the United States because of the stock market. The stock market reflects the fact that the big corporations are permanently, not temporarily, but permanently going to own market share that the mom and pop stores that have been shut down by these governors uh, have lost and will never recover. They'll never open back up again. And so these the like the restaurant chains, that's permanent uh, acquisition of market share in the restaurant industry that they have. You know, they've, they've done fairly well, frankly, compared to the independents. And you can just go down the line, the, the hardware stores. Well, people are buying their stuff on Amazon. 
but they're not going to go back to the mom and pop hardware stores. Uh, so it's a, you know, 150 days later, um, some of the money still hasn't been spent. One of the senators called it the money cannon. I wished he had called it the money cannon 150 days ago when I was the one, you know, <laughs> because you know what? They never had a quorum in the Senate. No. no nobody over there stood up. What, wasn't it a voice vote? It was a voice vote. It was like, by <laughs> I think it was unanimous consent, probably. Uh, which, you know, when you do unanimous consent, you don't even have a debate. Uh, and it's just ridiculous. None of this stuff was marked up in committees or debated in committees. There were some senators that warned that, <laughs> hey, guys, if we pay more people to stay at home than to go to work, that could be a problem with this bill. And they those senators got shouted down and the bill passed anyway. But those senators should have stood up because they were right. They noticed it. They should have stood up and demanded. And, and right now they'd be looking pretty brilliant. But as it were, they just they backed down because everybody was afraid then. And people are still afraid now. And yeah, I mean, by the way, I would love to share some information with you about my own experience with this virus. Your own um, experience with the virus. So, so okay. So Thomas doesn't care that people are dying. He cares more about his money, even though we just established that actually the bill itself is what got what made everyone else rich, created market share for the monopolies, which again, I just want to say before you get, I, I know where you're headed with this. And I think that our listeners need to hear this, but you, you said a very powerful point that there's one thing when you have the government and the private sector, right? So, all right, you know, the government's strong and it gets stronger and stronger, but you have a private sector. What the government did with this bill was was like a fifth column within the private sector. It's the worst thing ever. It made the private sector like the government. So, in other words, where the private sector is essentially, you know, 10 major corporations, depending on the industry, and that's it. So they control everything. And then now we're seeing it's not just economic and the dependency and destroying businesses, but it's cultural Marxism, too, because then they turn around and serve as the enforcers of the other thing we're seeing. You know, I call it anarcho tyranny. You have anarchy mixed with the tyranny, anarchy for some tyranny for others. So this whole BLM agenda, you shall obey the cancel culture. All of that is then enforced by that wing that that they they you know that time bomb they set off in the private sector, and and that is all born out of just denuding the Americans of their dignity of their self sufficiency. Um, so by, by the way, yeah, you just reminded me of something I got. I have to get off of my chest. You talked about the private sector and uh, and government, right? Well, there's an organization called the Chamber of Commerce that sits between the private sector and government. Ostensibly, their mission is to promote commerce, correct? Well, yeah, government okay. commerce. <laughs> yeah. They, I'm, I'm going to say right now, they've succumbed to the looting because now they are lobbying me and every member of the Kentucky delegation, and they're doing this in all 50 states. They are lobbying us to make them eligible for the government handouts, like the Chamber of Commerce, the organization. I think it's a 501c6. They're uh, 
they're a lobbying firm, okay? They lobby state governments, they lobby federal governments, they were excluded from the handouts in the $2 trillion bill, and now they're trying to get the legislation changed so that they can get some of that action. And uh, I tweeted at them yesterday, because they tweeted at me, trying to put public pressure on me to help them loot the public (laughs) uh, chest of money there. I tweeted back at them, hey, why don't you help me work against Andy Bashir's war on commerce? Like, instead of, instead of like just accepting the fact that our governor has shut down commerce and trying to get your hand out, what, this is the time, if you're the Chamber of Commerce, to stand yes. up for commerce and instead of getting oh, oh, in the so- soup. Soup kitchen line instead of so so okay so Thomas I, again let, let's hold off your personal experience with with the virus I want to okay. get to that soon but I want to continue this train of thought because we we talked about the dependency side right the handout side of what this bill and what our broad response did but that seamlessly transitions into the tyranny side with one hand we beat you down the other hand we say well here you have nowhere to run here's the free money so the way it leads to that is again by creating destroying small businesses which is really the lifeblood of republicanism and self-government and liberty and and basically making everything like one big government GSC i mean a- amazon and walmart are essentially now government GSEs that's really what they are and what that does is then it goes and enforces the cultural marxism and the tyranny remind so, me what GSC stands for government sponsored entity Okay. Okay. GSA. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, no, and, well and, uh, the reason I bring that up is just because all, all of your colleagues, you know, w- you know, went to town over Freddie, uh, Freddie Mac and uh, Fannie Mae. Those were the original GSEs that were bailed out. And then like now when th- it's this times a million, suddenly they have no problem with it. Suddenly it's good. Um, and that's what's so pathetic about these Republicans and, and people like McCarthy and McConnell. And and but again, it gets back to the Chamber of Commerce, the looting. You don't see smashed windows like you did in Chicago, but it's kind of the same principle. And they get them to support this. So what I've noticed is we were saying this back in March. Look, stop presupposing and funding a shutdown. Use the leverage of maybe a small scale funding to get out of a shutdown and condition the funding to governors cannot suspend liberty. They can't create these mandates. Then you maybe could get a certain amount of money. But if you just give them tons of free money, it's going to presuppose a shutdown. So you're stimulating a dead body, open the country, and then you won't need to spend that much money. That was always the point. So exactly what you're saying, the said and and, and I don't know how you get around this. Maybe you have advice for us how to fight back locally. We've been working on some of these ways to fight back with your school boards, your sheriffs, your county commissioners. Here's the deal. I've noticed everyone just wants to survive. No one wants to fight. The Chamber of Commerce, just give me more money. Okay, doctor's offices. Um, we have a four-month-old that it was going to go without vaccinations. I mean, they're like, oh, well, someone in your family, because I have a cold now. You know, which is worse than most people get coronavirus these days. And, oh, I don't know. I just can't come in. And, you know. Have you been tested? Have you been do you tested? think I'm going to get tested? I mean, when, <laughs> when I have like a little bit of losing my voice. I mean, come on. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to put up with that. But Jump the, in the pool. Jump in the DNA pool. Well, well there you go. Well, <laughs> Send your DNA. Also, somewhere. we got it from our, our son picked it up because he was locked down forever. Finally went to backyard camp for a week. 
And a lot of families here got another family was tested. It was negative. They all got this thing. These kids weren't experienced. They got the cold. So, you know, it's not a primary vector if I got it from him, whatever. The point being that basically my wife yelled at the doctor and 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 what 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 we got out of her was that like yeah she thinks it's bullcrap too but it's like they're scared of being shut down and then you go to the businesses they're scared of being shut down you go to the private school that i had to pull my kids out of private school they're mandating mask wearing i found out they don't really believe in it but they don't want to get shut there everyone is scared so everyone just goes along intensifies the shutdown and helps the government enforce it even in the private sector how do we break out of that damn vicious cycle Mm. <laughs> well, here's the problem. I have some other insight uh, that you might find useful. In my primary race, I went uh, into the field and polled my constituents. Um, and I asked them if they had a favorable view of the bailout bill, the $2 trillion bailout bill. This was roughly 21 days after March 27th, when the bailout bill passed. And for half the constituents, we asked them, did they like the stimulus bill? You know, because depending on how you ask the question, you may get a different answer. So we were careful to call it a bailout with half of them and a stimulus with the other half. 83% of Republican primary voters had a positive view of the $2 trillion stimulus bill. And 79% of Republican primary voters had a positive view of the $2 trillion bailout bill. It didn't matter what you called it. Four out of five Republicans, not elected oh, Republicans, man. these are voting Republicans, had a favorable view of the bill. So how did you win 85 to 15 or whatever it was? Yeah. Um, it was actually... It, we we were 88 to 12 on election night, but when the mail-in ballots were counted, I went down to 81 to 19. <laughs> That's uh, funny. Which is a pretty big swing. Even, so even within uh, Republican primary voters, the more conservative people show up on election day and the less conservatives mail it in. But that's that's a generalization. I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on anybody <laughs> and how they vote. Uh, so how did I win? I, here's the other conundrum, Daniel. Uh, my... Republican primary electorate has a 94% uh, positive or favorable view of Donald Trump. And he said to throw me out of the Republican <laughs> Party six weeks before the election day. <laughs> so, and it with worked the, with other people. It did. So, yeah, he may have gotten some defeated, but I actually think he has less influence well, if you take a stand, if people know who you are, so why, how was it that I got 81%? What's the, is there cognitive dissonance among uh, my constituents? No, I don't think so. I think they want somebody to fight and to fix things and not to rubber stamp things. So maybe they have an 80% favorable view of the $2 trillion bill, but they don't have an 80% favorable view of dead people getting checks or corporations getting enriched, or uh, you know, we can just this, go down the Thomas, line. Thomas, that is really profound because I've always been a, a longtime proponent of not looking at the political spectrum in a linear way. People are not like political Twitter, you know what I mean, where everyone's kind of set in their way and they, they know about everything and it's kind of consistent, your views and this and that. It's that 
people know the country is in shambles now. They don't necessarily know why, who, what, where, but they want help. If you offer them help, they'll take it. Republicans are not offering any alternative model, an alternative narrative, an alternative anything. They're going along with what the left's doing. So people by default will gravitate that to that. But if you show how, look, they, they're lying about this, they're gratuitously causing it, here's a much better strategy, I think people would come around. So here's a model. Here's something we could do. It seems inevitable that there's going to be a continuation of this unemployment bonus. Okay, it was $600 a week. The, Trump is trying to do it by executive order, three to $400 a week, depending on how you count it. Um, why don't we as Republicans insist in legislation that any kind of federal unemployment bonus only goes to people in states where the governor has opened the economy. Like that way it's, it's a reflection of the hardship caused by the virus, not by their governor. And if a governor has got his foot on the brake, why should we be pouring gas on the motor? See, this We're is not- what pissed me off. So many people are debating the legality of what Trump did. And, and I, you know, probably a lot of it's not legal, um, we don't like that type of stuff. But, you know, there's a part of me that I just don't give a damn anymore. I mean, when you have Cuomo setting up roadblocks that you couldn't even do during the Articles of Confederation, I mean, the Constitution has become a joke. You know, every every governor is suspending fundamental rights. I mean, the mass stuff violates. I mean, certainly any case law we have. Um, I mean, if, if abortion is a right to privacy, this sure as heck is. But the point is that just on on the merits of it, I thought Trump was on a pretty good trajectory that like USOBs went and screwed us and and created this calamity the last four months with the shutdowns, with the the paralysis of the fear and panic. See, it's not just the shutdown, but it, it then engenders a certain gratuitous fear and panic that is self-fulfilling that even even without it, it's kind of like, you know, people are shut down and then you come in for money. No, I'm not going to give you more money. And I thought he was pretty strong on that. I think Mark Meadows has shown at least somewhat of a better, more aggressive negotiation into the mix that we didn't have before when it was just Mnuchin. So negotiations fell apart, and I was happy. I thought that was, you know, okay, at least finally, I, I thought for sure that was sailing through. But then the president went unilaterally and is like, all this free stuff. And I'm thinking like, dude, at least if you're going to go unilateral, like, and forget about statute, just, just do it right. Condition it against the governors. Say no money to states that don't open up the schools. That's right. And be honest about things like suspending the payroll tax. It's called the payroll tax and people equate it with the income tax. The payroll tax is a, is a euphemism or, or it's another word for your social security and Medicare contribution. So, you know, in, in a year, I'm going to have people in a town hall yelling at me that Congress robbed from the trust (laughs) fund. Okay. Well, what they don't know is they haven't themselves been paying into the trust fund for the last six months. So what, what Trump should do is say, look, what I'm doing is I'm allowing you not to pay into social security and Medicare. <laughs> and and in exchange, we're going to have to diminish the, I mean, this is just how math works. You pay less in, you're going to get less out. 
Somebody needs to have that adult conversation. Well, well uh, so, so is that true? Okay, so, so here's, I mean, I, I believe it is, but I want you to explain this to our audience. A lot of people ask me this. How in the world are we able to get away with this? So no other country could do this. Like Israel, for example, they did like uh, an insane lockdown. They destroyed their country. I mean, and that's why you have massive protests, not like BLM protests, but like you actually have protests against the um, the lockdown. They've turned pretty violent, um, something we haven't had here because it, there's no like free free printing press there. They can't manipulate the dollar. But here, it almost seems like the government gets away with it that like – it's almost like unlimited. I mean, I'm telling you, there's so much money going around where I live. They're literally handing out free everything. And it's been going on for months and there's no end in sight. What, how and when are we going to see the repercussions of that? It will start with our lenders. When our lenders decide that um, we're a higher risk, they'll raise the interest rate. And instead of paying half a percent, we pay 4%. And when you pay 4% on $25 trillion, that's a trillion dollars of interest every year. Yeah, but they'll say every country is in shambles. So relative to other countries, we're not necessarily worse off. What's going to happen is, I mean, there are a f- only a few ways you can plug the hole. When if you, You're going to have to borrow your own money, which means printing it. And when you print it, there's going to be inflation. And I can tell anybody who's listening right now, of course, most of the people listening to your podcast don't have a lot of faith that they're going to receive much in Social Security. But the, the Social Security, they're not going to, if inflation goes to 10%, they're not going to have a 10% adjustment in your Social Security COLA. It's not going to happen. Social Security is priced, that little statement that you get to make you think like it's a compulsory 401k, that little statement that you get in the mail is going to be the same statement. And the But the d- money that it, they're going to be paying you is going to be worth half as much by the time you retire. So everybody's going to get robbed in this except for the people that have alternate investments and ways to hedge their wealth. All right, we, we don't have much time left, but when you know, I want to just continue on the financial aspect, go to the liberty and and then talk about your your experience and what that demonstrates. But let's say this falls apart, the president acted unilaterally, so you're not going to have an extra spending bill, but we are going to have a CR slash budget sort of bill that has to be passed for FY 2021 um, <laughs> sometime in September. By the way, there are 13 legislative days between now and the election. <laughs> uh, the 12 appropriations bills have to get passed, a highway bill, a waterways bill. Like, oh, it's just insane. Oh, I forgot about the highway bill, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, the highway to hell. So so here, here we are. What would you do if you had one bullet to fire in that gun to take a stand and demand one condition or provision be placed in that bill? What would it be? On which bill? The the, the CR. The to, CR. To, to attempt to rectify the situation we're in. Oh, man. Look, Thomas, you're seeing the worst tyranny spread throughout the country. You're seeing Americans being manhandled and arrested for life, liberty, and property. You're seeing this money and dependency and the tyranny presupposing a certain premise about this virus that it just is not true and it's not going away. 
The budget, as Madison said in the Federalist Papers, is kind of the last redress of grievances for the people in the House. I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing. You're in the right. people's house. What? Th- that's my question. What? <laughs> okay. How do you use that budget as as leverage? Now, I, I understand okay. Pelosi controls the House, but remember, you know. Now, obviously, I don't think he's going to take your phone call. But if you were one of your colleagues advising the president, which some of them do, he does have that almighty veto pen. Right. What way, should he demand? If Mark Meadows does take my phone calls. Well, there and, you go. So, so yeah. what? And, and and you know, I'm sick of hearing this garbage. Nancy Pelosi controls the House. Well, that's true, but Republicans control Listen, the Senate and the veto pen. I'm under. Okay, so you put me on the spot, and I've, uh, I've there's all these constraints in Washington D.C. So to imagine this, I have to loosen some of the constraints. But there's one constraint I. I can't loosen because it would just be pure fantasy. And that's that they would spend less money, not more. Okay. So knowing that when no, Republicans- no, we're going to bankrupt ourselves, that, that, right. that that's a premise. When, I'm when talking Republicans, about rectifying the yes. Corona fascism yes. and hysteria. Yes. So when, when Republicans want to spend a trillion and Democrats want to spend 2 trillion, they get together and compromise and spend 3 trillion. Okay. So understanding that's the kind of compromise that I could hope for what I would do and this is this is all within the constraints that I know exist. I would propose that we take all the thousands of PhDs who are on the government payroll right now at Sandia National Labs or National Institutes of Standards and Technology, like all these tens of thousands, even the ones uh, that work for NASA. OK, I don't care if you're a physicist, a chemist, whatever you are. You've got atomic force microscopes. You've got all these, all these mass spectrometers. Work on understanding this virus. Why are we still on Twitter having debates about how long? And if there are still people who say the antibodies don't confer any immunity. And if they do, it lasts a week. Like, how can you say that? And there's this even virus elected- is different than any other virus ever. Yeah, it's from aliens. Who knows? You know, we've not it's not like we've been living with coronavirus for a hundred thousand years, okay? We so my what I would do, understanding that they would never let me spend less money, is I would say take some of this money or just take some of the money we already spend and use it on a Manhattan Manhattan project, type Manhattan project. I say when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, did we do a stimulus package? No. Did we say, oh, we need a trillion dollar infrastructure package? No, we devoted resources to the war, to, you know, sure. a- attacking but, but, back. But, but there, there was a real war, meaning the, the know, question here is. This is the other constraint this we is have the though, problem Daniel. because Until we can prove, until we can prove facts about the virus, you and I are going to be shouting at Twitter you know, trolls and, and but and, not just Twitter trolls. It's the government officials. I mean, you're going to be yes, throwing more are, money essentially at Bill Gates and his and his cronies. I mean, that's that's really what it will well, wind up doing. The Twitter trolls have the imprimatur of things that are uttered by Fauci and senators <laughs> and representatives. And so. well, yeah, but there's a lot of those people that are, you know, faceless and nameless that that subscribe to this. I mean, to me, some of this is is conditioning the governors. I mean, saying, hey, you know, any of this, like like you were saying with with what Trump did unilaterally, but I think this needs to be in the budget bill. Any 
any more like state loan forgiveness and the this and the unemployment and whatever and the money for schools. I mean, the president said that it's got to be you got to open up. So, I mean, it's got to be towards that. I think restrictions have to be placed on liberty. Um, have you ever thought in your wildest you, you, dreams? Wait, wait, you just said you think restrictions have to be placed on liberty. You mean lifted? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, restrictions have to be placed on 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 the um, infringements of liberty. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. So, Ooh. for example, like the mass thing. Would you have ever thought that to breathe free air, that God created our lungs in a way that it filters out carbon dioxide, and we would say you cannot be shown in public if you don't have that on? And and look, you know, I followed the criminal justice issue, like illegal immigration and crime. You have anything in crime, whether it's a new thing or even an old thing, you got a lawsuit with a million lawyers on behalf of those criminals saying this is unconstitutional. I am floored. That this stuff is going, and I don't even see lawsuits. I don't even see anything. Nothing. I mean, also, uh, one of the most depressing things is a lot of the state legislatures aren't pushing back on their governors. Well, Kentucky is a Democrat governor, Republican legislature. So are you telling me that they're kind of going along with Bashir's? Well, we're we're in a unique situation, and this may be the case in other states, where only the governor can call the legislature back into session until January. So they are, uh, in some sense, except for the 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 bully pulpits, they are powerless legislatively. But some of them, not enough of them, some of them are calling out the governor. Uh, we have a few brave. State legislators, leaders, and uh, but not enough of well, them. What I mean, about county officials and sheriffs? I mean, oh. like at, at the end of the day, that's where the power is, and 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 that's really what I've been saying. Look, you know, you go and you see how the police are standing back, people are beating, maiming. You you even see these checkpoints now, where it's like it's like Fallujah, where you have the militias setting up checkpoints, and 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 the police just let that happen, and they could. Uh, swarm motorists and pull them out of their cars and, you know, stuff like that. And they're not doing anything. So you would hope that they sure as heck wouldn't do anything to then enforce <laughs> unconstitutional right. laws. Well, are you seeing that where you are in Kentucky? Yes, I, I'm seeing some brave sheriffs who are telling the governor he can take his mandates and shove them. And so my hat's off to the sheriffs who are like, look, we've got real crimes to solve. We've got murders and things. We're not going to run around taking down license plates yep. in church parking yep. lots, which is what the governor asked for. And uh, and a lot of county officials are pushing back too, but then there are also county officials who, not many, but a few, who are lobbying me so that they can get some of the bailout money for their counties. And then uh, one one disturbing thing here recently, this just happened this week, we were on schedule to have in-person learning, in other words, school. Uh, and the governor came out and said, I highly, highly, highly recommend against it. And now it's up to the school boards and you all take yep. a vote. But you're going to get a call from me if, oh. you vote to, if you vote to open up in August. And so uh, almost every school board uh knuckled under to the governor what about boone county i i'm not sure what happened in boone county there's I, only one there's only one by the way that's one of my counties i know in my own home county uh they delayed it till november 5th 
I, I don't understand Boy Thomas. I mean, I'm bringing this up. I mean, obviously, some of our listeners aren't familiar with that geography. You're in the 4th Congressional District, northern Kentucky, um, closer to Ohio there. Uh, these are some counties that Trump has won by 50-point margins. Yes. he Trump got 83% uh, of the vote in, in the county that just delayed. This is the county I'm talking to you from, Lewis County. Where I went to K, K through 12. I went to public school here in Lewis County. Trump won 83% of the vote uh, when he was on the ballot, and he'll he'll probably win more than that next time. They decided to delay the election until November 5th. Now, it that may just be common sense. The Wait, delay the election or delay school? Oh, I'm sorry, the, the school, yeah. right. I'm sorry, I was jumping to the my school next school until after the election, yeah. The, right, the school until after the election. Now, that actually may be the most... <laughs> Well, that's very scientific. Thing. That's actually yeah, the most because, scientific. <laughs> right. They may have got together and, <laughs> and said, look, this there's not going to be any logic or reason to this virus until the day after election day. <laughs> and so my hat's off. Like if instead of picking you know, a date in October, they picked one in November. My hat's off to him. Uh, no, that that's but, really true because I mean, even Bill Gates and you know all the noted you know scientists like Bill Gates and and these guys are uh, <laughs> you know saying that look you know it's not going to work fully. You're going to have to have a number of shots, and the truth be told, it's not going to work for immunocompromised, which is the whole enchilada. Um, but where is the, the election? I mean, look, you know that's I mean, heck, if I'm not saying I want this, but but if Biden wins, it could be that will be a hundred percent cure. Could be. Just amazing <laughs> recovery for the whole country, the economy. Yeah, I mean, the, what the media doesn't tell you can't hurt you, and uh, you know, no one, no one has ever heard of HCOV OC forty three and the other coronaviruses right. that 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 have lurked around and and likely started out as pandemics and became colds, <laughs> and and they're very existent. And the fact that we didn't do what we're doing now then is precisely why the kids are immune because they get those colds and they have the cross immunity mm -hmm. um the react the t-cell reactivity from that that's precisely why it's not a problem but they're treating it as if it's a problem um i mean that's the irony so with that i want to just close with um your experience with coronavirus that yes. demonstrates the insanity of how we panicked in march and to a certain extent are panicking even more now that we know we've lived with it for a while we know it's a very heterogeneous threat what do you think you had or yes. you know you had? Okay. So I tested positive uh, a week or two ago for coronavirus antibodies. Okay. This this was the Mount Sinai test. It's uh, And so let me walk through that. They give you the titer level. So they came back and they said your titer is 960 in order to donate plasma for convalescent plasma, you would have to be 320 or higher. So I've got I'm at three times the level you need to be a plasma donor. Okay. Wait, 960. Could you give us a scale of like what yes. it's? So uh, if you are at uh, 80 or 160, that's considered a weak response mm -hmm. to the virus. 320 is the threshold for donating convalescent plasma, uh, 960, which is what I tested, is three times that level. And then there's one level beyond that. Uh, I think it's, it's it's 1,200 or something like that. And then that's as high, or 2,800. That's as high as they go with the test. Those Whoa. are dilution ratios. 
Okay. They dilute your, your, the blood that you donate, you know, uh, in my case, 960 to one and see if it still reacts with the, with these little sp protein spikes that they are able to manufacture that are facsimiles of a coronavirus protein spike. Okay, it's a pretty advanced test. So let's go through what this means. It could mean that, uh, well, first you could say, well, a Congressman Massey had a false positive. This test, it's very unlikely that you could have a false positive in this test because they're actually counting the level. So mm. they test you once before they even bother counting how much of the antibody you have. And if you fail that, they, they give you a, a negative result. But if you pass that, then they test you again. It takes like seven days to get the results because they run the second test where they actually wow. measure how many antibodies. So the, the, the uh, likelihood that this would be a false positive is very, very low. I mean, I guess they could mix my blood up with somebody else's blood, but the results came back with my blood type on it, and it matches. Okay, so... Um, What's the other thing? Well, I could have had an asymptomatic case and not known about it. Right? But it wouldn't have been that high. Probably not that high. I didn't ask. So Senator Rand Paul had an asymptomatic case. And, um, and he has the antibodies. But he found out he had the case and the antibodies at the same time. He was in the recovery mode. By the way, his wife never got it. Huh. Okay. To put that... Yep. bookmark that notion. Yep. And we'll... I have the same thing in my extended family, cross reactivity. There's because we know how transmissible this is. There's no right. way a wife cannot get it. There's right. I mean, if there's no inherent brick wall there. Right. Yeah. They I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no way like I mean, it's not my business what marriage type of marriages some people right. have, but even even a bad marriage. I mean, it's, Rod, it's going to Rand, spread. Right. Rand has a strong marriage. I see and Kelly together all the time. <laughs> he goes home as often as he can. It, it would seem if he were able to transmit it. Also, his son didn't get it. I asked him about yep. that, too. And he 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 told me, he said, I, I don't think I was able to transfer it because my son and my wife didn't get it. OK, so. Either I had a false positive or an asymptomatic case, or this is uh, maybe I tested positive for corona antibodies, but this was a different coronavirus. Okay, there is that possibility. And yes. in the footnote on the test, it says it mentions the four other coronaviruses. You've mentioned one. The other one is like HKU1, and I yeah. forget the numbers for them. But it says it's a, there's a possibility that the, your antibody test is positive because you had a reaction to one of those other coronaviruses and developed antibodies. But that begs a question, Daniel. Given as thorough as this test is, where they actually make sure your antibodies attach to protein spikes that are exhibited on the COVID-19 coronavirus, if those antibodies work in the test, wouldn't they work in real life on COVID-19? You would the, think, uh, yeah. On the, um, I guess I should say SARS-CoV-2, yep. which is the technical. All right, people always try to correct me, but even the test says COVID-19 antibodies <laughs> on it. Okay, it was done at Mount Sinai. So there's that possibility. But here's the fourth possibility is the one that I think is most likely. And I want your listeners to know this because this would be, this would challenge some of the basic assumptions that politicians are throwing out there. Daniel, I got sick 
on January 3rd. And uh, other than food poisoning and one other bout with the flu, I've never been that sick in 10 years. Okay. In fact, I haven't been to the doctor for a sickness like that in 15 or 20 years. Like maybe in college I had like strep throat or something. Okay. I got sick enough. I went to the doctor on January 7th. And I, and by the way, nobody was talking about COVID or coronavirus at that time. And I told the doctor, I said, I don't know what this is. I've got no energy. I can barely get off the couch. Although I did drive myself. But, but I, just to be clear, you didn't have trouble breathing. I'm assuming I did not, which okay. is why, which yeah. is why when they started talking about COVID-19, I sort of ruled out it. Okay. But now I'm hearing from a lot of people who have the symptoms I had, and it doesn't go to their lungs. Oh, no. What you're describing is 10 times worse than most. Most people I know, I mean, I'm a little younger than you, but most people in their 30s that I know have gotten this, um, if they weren't asymptomatic, which a lot were, um, and they found out retroactively with antibody tests, it was sometimes a loss of smell, um, maybe a lethargic period, period of a day or two, maybe low grade fever. You're describing like a severe flu. Then I don't know anyone who got that actually. I had, I had no in, intestinal issues, no upset stomach or anything like that. It was just severe fatigue, a fever, and I would call it low grade fever, but it came and went and a sore throat. Okay. And some, some nasal drainage. All right. So I went to the doctor. I said, I don't know what this is, but I got to get on an airplane and go to D.C. tomorrow. Now, this is where people might get mad at me. <laughs> They're going to say, oh, my gosh, he was patient zero. And um, they gave me a, a, a test for strep throat. And the, the nurse practitioner was like, mm, I don't know. And I said, I need that shot. Just give me whatever you've got. Like, we don't know what it is. Throw everything you got at it. So the doctor comes in, and and this, by the way, I've since spoken to this doctor, and he thinks there's a good chance that this was coronavirus back then. So the doctor comes in, and he says, well, it's kind of, there's a faint reaction on, on the strep thing. I think he was just trying to give me what I wanted, which was the Rocephin shot. He said, all right, you can have the shot, and we're going to give you an antihistamine, which is loratadine. It's the generic form of Claritin. They gave me the shot, of which was the powerful antibiotic. They gave me the antihistamine. I had uh, early when I started contracting some symptoms. I took the zinc cold therapy, so you know there was that too. Within twelve hours, I was feeling like a different person. Like, and the next day, it was I was at ninety percent health. Okay, so. I think I had it then. All right. Now, today, just while just while our podcast was starting, I got a text from my wife. By the way, I was sick from January 3rd to January 7th. My wife, even though I slept on the couch and tried to, you know, I didn't know what it was, tried to make sure she didn't get it. She got a milder form of what I had, which lasted for a week or two, the second and third week of January. By the fourth week of January, my daughter, uh, 16-year-old daughter who lives at home, caught it and coughed from the end of January until the beginning of March. That was her main symptom was manifest as a dry cough. Now, we haven't 
had her tested, but my wife's test results just came back 30 minutes ago. She has the antibodies. And it's less than yours. Uh, The test she took was a lab core test. It wasn't Mount Sinai. And they didn't, as far as I can tell, they didn't list the titer level on it. Because that would really clinch it if, if, you know, it seems like it was a milder form um, that would really show it. Yes and no. Um, I read a study, and uh, this is on my Twitter too, that where they tried to correlate the, the severity of your symptoms with the uh, with the number of antibodies, and there wasn't a strong correlation. There was a slight correlation, but it wasn't like statistically significant, as they say. But that test that I saw, by the way, here's the reason I'm I'm interested in. I'm sorry, that study is people say, wait, you think you had this in January and you still have the antibodies? What are you joking? Like, that's so improbable. But go look at the the study I put on Twitter. They tested, I don't know, 30 or 40 people in a hospital. They had an outbreak in a hospital where a lot of the staff got it. And so they tested patients and staff. And what they found out is in the 80% of those who developed antibodies, because not everybody does, these are IgG antibodies, not everybody does. Uh, there are other ways to fight this off, I, I suppose, because people recover without ever developing those antibodies. In the 80% who developed the antibodies, they tested them again 12 weeks later with the same test. And like 80, per, 80 or 85% of those saw their IgG antibodies go up, not down, in the course of 12 weeks after the, um, the first antibody test. So... You know, there's conflicting information out there. Uh, I believe that the that the immunity that is conferred to you with the antibodies lasts far longer than two or three months. And then who knows what the T-cells do? We already saw from SARS-1, they worked 17 years later in a lab um, when they simulated that in Singapore. So, yeah, I mean, that's clear. But I think there's something more powerful that you're alluding to. We, we talked about 15 days to stop the spread and flatten the curve in March. And now here we are 150 days later. And what are we doing? Well, it gets back to an article I wrote that got 2 million hits more than almost anything I've written in that of thousands of articles in my career on numerous issues. And I, and I asked the question, how do you flatten a curve that you don't know when it started? Moreover, if you lived with something blissfully for so long, What changed now? And what you're demonstrating is what so many of my listeners and so many people that have emailed Steve Dace's show and, you know, other people on our network. And really just you see it online. I know in my community, people that have gotten stuff in December and January that they tested negative for strep and negative for the flu, negative for mono, and they didn't know what it was. And they had these things. And we now know Sweden and France and Italy, there's been all sorts of studies, whether it's from the fecal deposits, whether it's just um, from people that had strong correlation with this and they have antibodies. We've had this in Ohio. The Ohio health director said at Pennsylvania, I've seen Washington State as early as December. God knows when it started, but we know it was there earlier. Could it be? Could it be? that this was started out similar to SARS-1, maybe not quite as deadly, but SARS-1 where it was much more severe 
and but but rare like right i mean that that's what we know that there tends to be an inverse relationship and it's god's grace it's a microevolutionary theory but it really shows god's grace he's not going to give you something with an ebola like ifr or mers which is like 30% death rate that's that's common and spreads like the flu no it's kind of be rare isolated people seem to have gotten it and then in my view it could be in new york this thing kind of clustered so you had a reloading of that gun much more than anywhere else and the reason i say that is just because i know a lot of people in new york and it's not just that more people died but more people like you that like you know, their 30s, 40s, they weren't immunocompromised, but they, they got a pretty, they were never scared of dying and they never felt they had to go to the hospital. But it, it was like, wow, this is, I've never gotten this sick. It's really bad. Versus you go since March in the rest of the country, you go to Florida, you go to Texas. It's the same story. I mean, it's the people in the end of their life, the final years and the LTCs. But your average person is like either asymptomatic or really very mild, less than the flu, not more than the flu, less than the flu. And that it just attenuated. Is that kind of the theory you're you're hinting at? I don't know if it's attenuated. We're definitely more sensitive to it. I think in January, if you had a mild case of it, you thought you had an allergy reaction, right? You took an antihistamine and you went on with life and you, <laughs> you didn't know any better. I think it's our ability to measure that is more discreetly than we could have, let's say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago that's caused us to be terrified. Now we know the genetic sequence. Oh, so we must be able to control it if we can measure it, Right. But just because you can measure something. I mean, imagine if you measured every cold and called it a name, every coronavirus, every rhinovirus, or like I was telling my wife, I wonder if I had enterovirus just because A, kids are the primary vector of that. And B, it's this it's a summer thing, not a winter thing. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like mild fever. I never got fever, but mild fever and sore throat and this type of stuff. And it's just like. I mean, it's it's pretty shocking that you had that in January. Now you have antibodies. Um, well, here's the here's yeah. an implication. I mean, I proved with math on March 23rd that the government was lying to us about 15 days. Okay, and I'm going to put my homework on Twitter when I get done with this podcast. I'm going to post it, and you can read my math homework on March 23rd. But also, this notion, Daniel, that this was circulating in China. Uh, in in October and November, and that it didn't come to the United States until February. <laughs> okay, there are thousands of people who come from China every day. We're attached by the hip. There, not to mention. By the way, I was ordering stuff, uh, circuit board things. As I do as a hobby, I do some, still do some electronics and stuff, design circuit boards. I was, it was being manufactured in China and overnighted to my house using DHL, okay? Which, like, and, and meanwhile, there are people, the studies show that this can last on a surface for nine days, different types of surfaces. How could you believe that it would last on a surface for nine days? And we've got millions of packages coming from China overnight air and think that it took three months for patient zero to show up in the United States. The, re- the reality is there were probably 10,000 patient zeros 
We don't know who they are. <laughs> we don't. We, we have them. no idea. And, and, and that's why a place like New Zealand or Iceland is going to have much less because they introduced much less into it. Where our country is attached to the hip. God knows how many foreign students come in hundreds of thousands between semesters there in you know, late December, January. Um, you got uh, all the businessmen that go back and forth. We have a consulate in Wuhan. So clearly we have enough back and forth to warrant it. I never got the numbers from State Department. They don't release that, but it's got to be a lot. Um, we got a lot of that. And I'll just leave you with this, Congressman. You know, my dad, the last time he went was um, in late September. And he, he, you know, goes a few times a year on business. And he told me, and he didn't realize it then, but in retrospect, he realized when this whole thing broke out in March, he told me, they took my temperature there when I got to Shanghai. And he's like, I've been doing that for years. They never did that before. The official date that's given is November 17th um, oh, for the, the for introduction of it there. And the official acknowledgement by them was much later. So I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying... It, it's kind of interesting. But but to your point, back to the question you asked about, do, do I think it's attenuated? Do I think there's a less severe version of it? If there were a less severe version and a more severe version, look, I laid on the couch for four days. I It was over the, our Christmas break, okay? So I had the luxury of not going to work. But I don't think I was going to get on a plane unless I felt better. And so that... That was a fairly, I mean, I don't want any sympathy, but it was, in terms of the things that I've been exposed to, it was a fairly serious bout with an illness, but it kept me at home. And the only person, the only two people it was able to infect was my wife and my daughter. Like, if if there had been a less severe version, I would have been going out and enjoying my Christmas break. Exactly, right? exactly. And probably spreading it, and that one would outrun the more severe version. That's an interesting theory. So you're saying one thing is to say it attenuated. One is just to say that by definition, if you assume a certain viral load will will re-trigger itself. So by definition, if you have that viral load while you're going to be home, if you're going to be home, you're not going to spread it. Whereas if you're you know anywhere from asymptomatic to mildly symptomatic, I mean, who stays home if you don't have, especially if you don't have fever and you just have kind of like a little bit of a cold type of thing. You, know, you go about your day and it's just a little bit of an annoying sniffle. That's that's the virus that's going to get spread the most. Oh, geez. Not the one, not the one that lays you down on the couch for four days. Yeah, because it's something in New York. Again, in New York, it seems like it was a different animal. We're not we never saw that replicate itself again where I mean, again, according to, to city data, most of the deaths, again, 98 percent had one comorbidity. Uh, uh, 90% or 88% at at least two comorbidities. But I do know, I mean, more people did die, certainly even per capita. And I just know from people there, you had a lot more people that in their 30s and 40s without conditions that got serious cases. You know, I had an uncle who's in Long Island. He's 62, not that old, a little bit, but not that old. And he has a stent, but I never even knew that. I didn't even knew know, know of a heart condition. It's not what we're seeing elsewhere where it's got to be a serious heart condition. And that was scary. I mean, he couldn't breathe. He was taken into the hospital. I don't think he was in the ICU, but he was put on oxygen. It, that was really, really bad. Um, I don't. I, I really don't see people with that health status. A little bit of a heart condition, young 60s. 
that's kind of rare. But in New York City, that seemed pretty common, relatively. Um, and again, that's what spooked people. That and Lombardi scared people. 150 days later, we know that is not what has spread. It's, it's essentially turning a cold into the new threshold for the dark plague and killing our society. Any closing thoughts? Um, I don't have any thoughts. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you got to put your trust in God. What are you going to do already? What are you going to do already? We got it. We have to look here are my closing thoughts. We need to get on with life. The, the damage to our economy uh, is, has been immense. The damage to people's health. I I have friends who are pharmacists who talk to doctors and they they said one doctor said that they've had to do a lot more amputations uh, on people who had infections where if they had just come to the doctor sooner, wow. it could have been treated. And that's the kind of I know that's a gruesome thought, but that's what's happening when people are afraid to go out. When you're saying, oh, you've got to wear a mask, your neighbor could kill you and they don't mean to kill you. People stay home for the 10 years. Well, eight years, I've been in politics 10 years, eight years in Congress almost, uh, that I've been there. I've always been, everybody comes and lobbies me about the importance of testing and diagnosing sooner and getting treatment sooner. And that's why we need to spend more money on testing and diagnosis. And uh, we've always, we know there's a, a problem with access in rural areas that because people don't because it's there's a threshold you have to drive an hour to go to the doctor people put stuff off longer and so yep. then the illness costs more the, the to, difference between stage 3 and stage 4 cancer is is life and death and that's what that's what we're seeing when we look back on this i hope the revisionists don't win i hope we're able to take a, a, a an honest look at the data and i hope we're able to show how ridiculous this was how much money we wasted and um, and that we would hopefully not make these mistakes again. Exactly, folks. I mean, as as D.A. Henderson, the former dean of the Hopkins School of Public Health, widely credited with eradicating smallpox, he wrote in a 2006 publication, experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. Well, 150 days later, I don't think you could have imagined a worse degree of disruption. Thank you, Congressman Massey. We are way over time and out of time. This has been truly enlightening as always. We'll have you back in a couple of weeks. Folks, till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. 